Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of uh, Fortress on, a Hi- on the Hill. Um, on a hill. <laughs> um, glad you guys could join us. We have a uh, a really awesome guest today, um, NB Hankus, who uh, goes by by uh, uh, by Nate, um, is going to join us and talk about his uh, his book. Hi, Nate. How uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely. I uh, uh, Nate is the author of the recent adventure travel bestseller Waking Up on the Appalachian Trail The Story of War, Brotherhood, and the Pursuit of Truth. He's a veteran of the Iraq War where he operated drones with 4th Brigade, 1st Infantry Division between February 2007 and April 2008. He is also the founder of the Veteran Artist Residencies Nonprofit which provides artistic residencies for OEF and OIF, Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, combat veterans seeking self-expression and healing through the arts. So, Nate, thank you, uh, thank you so much for coming to talk about uh, talk about your book. Yeah, uh, it's an honor to be here. Like I said uh, before we started recording, um, you guys have had some giants on recently, and uh, I feel very humbled to be here. So that's just that's just a testament to the work you guys have been putting in. Well, we we, we really appreciate that. We the um, it's it's definitely a collective effort, but uh, but yeah, it's been a it's been an it's been a whirlwind recently, right, Danny? Oh yeah, we have had a a lineup of guests for sure, um, but we you know we've actually not had quite as many veterans of the recent wars have we of late and and which is interesting so i'm kind of glad we're getting back to our core function or or it really maybe it shouldn't be our core function but you know it's kind of our wheelhouse and uh and i think we're going to get into a lot of that today because we have similar experiences in terms of the wars the generation the 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 type the american way of war post 9-11 as it's developed but also uh very different jobs, right? You know, uh, I was, uh, you know, glorified infantry cab guy, military police, and then, but like the drone thing and the the, the view, right, the aperture of that, both literally and, and more metaphorically, is, is fascinating. And I think in some sense is more uh, indicative or more, you know, correlated to this, to where American warfare is going. And so I'm really glad we're doing this. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of uh, turn it back over to you, Henry, to, to like get us jumped in. But I just, I just want to say that I think 
it's we we've had we've had an older slew of guests lately haven't we i mean even just on like age uh and and really cool people but it's good to get back to talking to someone who's got not only just like the writing skills and the artistic element but some of those experiences that we've had but in in a different way that may in fact end up being more profound and indicative of the future yeah i uh nate i I do believe you're our first drone pilot we've ever had on the on the podcast we've had other people who've worked intel and worked with with drone units but not someone who's actually controlled them themselves and seen that seen that actual view so bring it very oh, it's good to be the first <laughs> so in, in in that spirit would you take us through a little bit of your time in the military um you know specifically your time on deployment um i i I was trying to picture, you know, uh, camp, camps overseas are a mass of, of buildings, some new, some used, and then tons of tents of, of different types. And I use it, tents is a very wide term here for, you know, can just be tarps put up over something or really big tents that house hundreds of soldiers. Um, but uh, having having your computers, having your setup in Humvees, under under tents it was kind of it was kind of odd to me but i i understood that you know when uh you know humvees can be a portable desk if they have to be just by the uh the nature of them so um take us through that a little bit kind of what your little bit about your you know your day-to-day and well you know what you came home with from from that experience yeah well i operated the shadow tuav it's about a 14 foot wingspan uh 14 feet in length it could operate anywhere from 3,000 to 15,000 feet. It would stay in the air for about five hours. And the reason that we operated out of the Humvees is because the purpose of uh, the drone, like the contract to actually build that drone system, uh, was that it was actually designed for, like, I would say, almost like mechanized warfare where you're advancing every day. Hmm. Um, so it's designed to be able to put up real fast in the morning, launch, uh, fly your mission as the troops are advancing and then tearing down at night and then catching up with the troops and just moving that way. So that's, it was designed that way. And in the back of this Humvee, there were two like swivel seats. Uh, there are probably five different, monitors and screens and it would be hooked up to different uh, antennas that would be able to communicate with the aircraft and on a given day you know in the book I liken it to just like the existence of any factory worker or you know working class you just wake up in the morning it's a it just becomes a routine and we were we were working pretty long shifts, uh, twelve hour days, seven days a week, which probably sounds like a cake to a lot of guys that were over there. But uh, it definitely felt like a grind. And we'd be tasked any given day could be, hey, just uh, tag along with this unit, kind of keep an eye out for on rooftops and alleyways for any potential snipers or attackers. And then we would be in direct communication with the troops on the ground during this time. 
And, you know, we'd also scan roads at night looking for people that were uh, digging on the side of the road, perhaps installing an IAD. So that was our main, our main mission over there. But it was new. Yeah, so it was novel. It was like we were attached to the Tactical Operating Center, which has one battle captain there who's kind of orchestrating the battle space. He's sending this company over here on this mission, and he's coordinating with helicopters and all his troops on the ground. So it became a very good tool for him to be able to zoom out and actually be able to visualize the battle space and actually be able to see the chaos that was going on. Uh, if there was, say, an, a coordinated attack after an IED had exploded a Humvee, uh, be able to see what was going on, and then he would have a better idea in his mind's eye of what was needed in the area and how he could best serve the, the troops on the ground. So as far as being a, like an asset, I think um, it was definitely appreciated by anyone in the battle space and anyone, even though it's on the ground, if they could hear uh, the drone, like if we were flying at a lower elevation, uh, I had heard comments from multiple people I knew who said, well, when I hear you guys up there, I feel a little bit better because <laughs> I know that uh, if anything goes down, we'll at least know we'll have a better awareness of the battle space and it won't be as chaotic. Um, and I would say yeah, on a given day, it's 12 hours in that, the back of the Humvee, uh, there would always be three people on a shift, two people, one manning the aircraft and one manning the camera. And then you'd have someone else who was kind of the go between the mission commander, if you will. And the aircraft themselves, we did not launch those. They were launched from uh, northern Baghdad when we were actually in southern Baghdad. And then we would just pick up signal once they were in the air and we had airspace all coordinated. And then we'd go on with our mission. So I flew entire deployment with not really seeing the aircrafts um, other than just as a little icon on the, on the map as I was operating them. Uh, yeah, we would take reports of what we had encountered or seen. We would put these into PowerPoints and send those up to the analysts or whoever looked at those that kind of wanted like the day's recap. We would take screenshots. Hey, this is what that battle space looked like during that attack. And really, it's just increasing the awareness of the battle space. If we did see, uh, let's say we saw someone implanting an IED, like physically, after a curfew, uh, they're physically digging on the side of the road. And we had reason to believe, uh, like, they shouldn't have been out there. And if they were doing that, then we had a, a reasonable suspicion that they were implanting an IED. Then... Uh, we did not carry missiles, thankfully for my conscience in hindsight, um, but we would coordinate with uh, Apaches at that time if we ever needed to actually uh, fire on the enemy that we were seeing. And that, even that felt wild. Um, 
because I was 20 years old at the time. And you feel like you are wielding all sorts of power and it's a lethal power. And uh, I don't know if that's something I've totally um, unraveled in my own psyche or how that had affected me at the time. But I think I was so indoctrinated that at the time it seemed mostly exciting. And I mentioned this in the book as a point of confusion for me after leaving Iraq is like, sometimes we'd, you know, take out a group of people and we'd be in the shelter and we'd be like laughing and high-fiving. And it became this really interesting, um, uh, dissonance or like this meta experience of the combat space. And I think that's a psychological toll that our culture and people who are work with veterans are just beginning to understand. I know that in the popular media, there have been some stories about uh, drone operators that have PTSD. And I find that interesting. I, I think I certainly feel that I suffered, but it seemed more like a moral injury to me, like a confusion, because the whole exercise of operating drones was a very cognitive experience. So you're taking in sights and you have time to think about what you're seeing. You have time to, uh, time to analyze and ruminate on these missions that you're working on. Whereas I don't know about what your experience was in the streets, but I'd have to imagine that you guys are just in the moment when you're out there and you're probably getting pushed so hard that you don't have a whole lot of time to think about what's going on. That's just an assumption I'm making. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Oh no, you're, you're absolutely on, on, on point there. Um, you, you you try to you try to do you know make preparations or, or strategize ahead of the moment if you can you know to tell them to slow down in certain places um, avoid you know uh, change lanes when you're going under an overpass um, in the event somebody would drop something on 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 the truck um, but yeah it was it was very much about the moment um, and some moments could go on, go on forever you know, uh, depending on what was going on, but yeah, the being pushed hard, you know, and, and I, the thing, the thing is, is, you know, in, in mentioning about, you know, the, yours, yours was not as much of a physical experience as it was a, a mental and emotional one. And, but, but it was, you know, you remember, you know, sitting in those Humvees for hours and hours and those things are not fucking comfortable. They're, they're not. Um, and depending on the, the weather outside, I don't know if you were, in, in in areas with sandstorms or where it got super super hot, I think you mentioned South uh, South Baghdad, right? Yep, Southern Baghdad, Fob Falcon, Fob Falcon. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I, I don't um, I don't really think of myself as having been through super huge hardship um, physically. It was, yeah, so in the book, it was the more the mental and cognitive that I focused on um, working with. And I definitely count myself fortunate. Obviously, the base was fairly um, 
primitive when we started out, but I can only imagine. So I got there in 2007. I can only imagine what it would have been like in 2003 or four. And, and my unit continually made improvements on that space and we left it better than, than we found it, but it was considered a, uh, I don't know what the threat of levels were, but it was considered dangerous pretty much the whole time I was there. So we didn't have, uh, any of the USO people coming uh, and shaking our hands like some of the, the bases did. Well, you had, uh, you, you wrote, you wrote several different times about incoming fire that you guys took very, very close to your position, right? Yeah. I mean, I lived in, we lived in tents to start and at a certain point I I would stop running to the shelters when rockets flew over and I just like roll over. It's like, I'm close enough to the perimeter that it's either going to hit the wall or it's going to go over me. Uh, it was the mortars that I was more fearful of just the sound. And the, there was one instance I, I did put in the book where, yeah. So we're basically sitting ducks. I guess that's that's one downside to having a job like that. Is you, you can't really move. So it was it was early on in the country. Things were violent. Um, it was during the Sunni Shia civil war, and this was part of the troop surge where the strategy was to bring in troops, just a lot of troops, and just quell the violence that we had essentially created by creating like instability in the region. Uh, it was early on, I hear the whistling of the mortar rounds coming in. I was green, green to it, but a lot of the older guys that were in the tactical oper operating center at the time, they knew what it was. They hit the ground way before I did. And uh, yeah, they just kept coming. Someone would get close enough, they'd rattle your chest. Others would start walking away and it was just a, a moment of panic. And there were many moments like that after, I think we were in the tents for maybe four months. And then we moved into this old bombed out factory that had uh, like rooms framed in. And then we had sandbags on top, but that building got hit by mortars like three times in a week. And it's it pretty rough until, uh, I wasn't on this mission, uh, but two of my, or th I guess three of my platoon mates eventually were able to uh, dial in on the coordinates when one of these attacks came during this streak where our building got hit three times and it was just coming daily and it was really wearing on everybody's nerves and they tracked where it came from and they saw the vehicle racing away. So we used the drone to follow the vehicle to its end point, And then the Apaches took out the vehicle and then perfectly quiet for weeks after that. And, and I, I think that's when everyone realized like, yeah, this is a, these guys are good. This is a good thing to have. It's good to have eyes on the battle space. So, um, so Nate, I was across the river at the same time. I was in uh, our fob. I didn't always live on the fob, but um, because of, eventually I sort of just moved out into the city. But I was at Rustamaya, 
or southeast yep. rather than sort of south centralish Baghdad, right? Falcon, you were on the other side of the river, I believe. Yep. Um, so yeah, I was there the same time as you. So I was there during what I always call the bad old days, right? Um, 2006, seven, of course, are the two, you know, they're the bloodiest years for uh, Americans, but, uh, but they're really the, the bloodiest years. What really matters in terms of numbers was they were the bloodiest years, as you mentioned, for the Iraqis. This is the height of the civil war. Um, and so it's interesting hearing you talk about it and like hearing the names of these bases. And it's funny. Uh, I think that some of those route names, like the more dangerous, you know, roads that we named with, uh, you know, our, our fun nomenclatures uh, after beers or, or, or whatever, or cartoon characters like Pluto, yeah, you know, or planets, or I don't even know how they did it. But anyway, uh, you know, I think some of those touchstones are going to stay with us forever in a way, you know, those names, even though they're gone now. And uh, so I, I had wanted to do a couple of things. So, that, so I'll circle back, but just kind of uh, for, for you to, to hear and know where I'm going to kind of come back to um, the, the culpability and the uh, where, who is responsible for the death of said, you know, insurgent or civilian, if there's a mistake, um, is interesting to me. So, you know, I know the shadow, obviously I don't know the, the system like you do, but uh, as a platoon leader, but especially as a troop commander later in Afghanistan, you know, I was one of the guys who was looking at the spreadsheet to see who had the shadow coverage, what was the plan for ISR, stuff that you're familiar with. So I was at the point where I was more um, looking at the services that, that were provided by folks like you and then figuring out what was the right asset to to watch the right spot at the right time and what was available, right? Because everyone was competing for your wares, as I'm sure you were yep. somewhat aware. And I think that one of the interesting things that you brought up is, okay, so I wasn't, you know, piloting a an armed drone like the Reaper or the Predator, but we would find folks that then, you know, coordinate with the Apaches to, you know, potentially kill them. So what's interesting about that is that in the newer American way of war, just American, just all ways of war, uh, things like culpability, things like who's responsible either for the positive high five of the kill. And, and you're right, it gets pretty macabre, doesn't it? The way you get yeah. excited about, <laughs> about the, 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 the execution, really, even if right. they're an enemy of these folks. But it's interesting because I, you know, even as a, a non-drone guy, just as someone who called so many airstrikes and so much artillery and so many drone strikes, you start to wonder, like, okay, so who's responsible? Is the pilot responsible or am I responsible because I'm the one who made the call? Or, you know, there's all these different places along the way. Or is it the, the drone the unarmed drone pilot like you who is, you know, setting up the, the feed that then leads to this. So that's interesting. I want to circle back to it because I, I think that it's interesting, this idea of moral injury, this idea of how you process that and, and what does it. But I'm a backstory guy. And so just for the sake of the listeners, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to hear you just kind of, and, we're, and obviously we're going to get to the trail, but circling back to sort of or, or, or throwing back to where you know where you kind of came from where you kind of came out of why the army why the job right like why what kind of led you to that journey so taking us up to the point where now you are in a position where you could be part of the kill chain that you know henry and i were also part of at different levels all right so i was raised roman catholic i went to a catholic school up until eighth grade then i went into public school so i had like a i had the moral upbringing in my youth of uh 
Catholicism and Christianity, and then the the world the worldview of a public educated high schooler going into the military. My family has had people in the military. I wouldn't consider it a military family, but people have done their stints. Um, I had an uncle that was Intel in the Vietnam era. Uh, my both my grandpa served. My grandpa Al was in the Navy. My grandpa Louis was in the Lid Coast Guard. He was a carpenter on a ship, which I thought was a pretty cool job. And this was World War II uh, era, like post World War II. I don't think either of them saw any action. But my my brother went into the National Guard, and some of his friends were in the National Guard. And you know, I'm just a a young a young high schooler and I think it's pretty cool. I look up to these guys. I think like, you know, there's all these mythologies that are at play in our culture, which affect our psyches. And there's this myth mythology of the, the warrior. And uh, I think at that age I was looking and seeking an identity and a sense of self and a, uh, I've always been fairly idealistic, so I was also seeking like honor and valor and those sorts of things that you may not find in the day-to-day world, or I guess you're more likely to run into those things in the military, it seems, at least from the media. And I got this idea, I was, yeah, I'm enjoying the military. All my, my brother's friends were infantry. I thought that sounded interesting because I had watched all the same war movies as they had. And my bro or my dad had the sense, my dad did not serve in the military. He had the sense to say, Nate, you know, you should talk to my friend uh, who happens to be a colonel in the National Guard, uh, who is also a bank president in my hometown. He said, hey, you should talk to my friend about different job opportunities in the military because I don't, I really don't think you're going to enjoy being in the infantry. Uh, it's not safe and they won't uh, necessarily value your, uh, your other gifts, more of the cerebral aspects. Uh, so I, I get a meeting, I'm at this bank and I'm, I t- I'm sitting across the desk from this, colonel and he's like you don't want to be in the infantry you don't want to be a cav scout he's like i've i've commanded these men (laughs) uh he's like you want to you want to get into something new and exciting you definitely want to be safer you know it's wartime uh you should check out this drone thing because it seems like it's going to take off it's going to get more advanced and it puts you in a really good position for the future so I started watching videos about drones and I thought that was pretty cool. I took the ASVAB. I did well enough. I could pick whatever job I wanted. And I got, I, I got the drone operator role and that was uh, tr- to be trained in Fort Huachuca, Arizona. And that's essentially how I, I came to it. And I would say also politically, uh, I grew up in a, really a conservative area, a lot of uh, conservative politics. That's kind of what I grew up around hearing these conversations. Uh, 
between my dad and his friends and uncles and hearing all these, all these ideas I just kind of bought into all that stuff because that's all I knew. And that's, that's like the beginning of the journey. Like this is where you start and that's where I started. And I thought that there was a lot of honor. I thought that the mission in Iraq was totally honorable and necessary and needed, but I, I didn't know anything about geopolitics. I was just kind of feeding off of the, uh, I guess that there was like a momentum after 9-11 and it seemed like that position, that warlike stance, uh, like carried the moral high ground. Uh, so I felt like I was in a, in, it felt like all the forces around me were encouraging that type of thought and uh, it seemed like my entire community supported me going to the military. Like I had joined when I was 17 so I could go to basic training between junior year and senior year of high school. Um, you know, parents have to sign off for that. There was no, there were no major discussions like, Hey, we don't think you should do this. They just, trusted me, which I'm glad they did. And I, cause I learned so much in the military and it's made me into the man I am today. Uh, but I basically went in there, uh, fairly ignorant of, of us politics and geopolitics other than what I was picking up from stations like Fox news or the conservative, uh, radio talk show hosts, like a Rush Limbaugh type character. So now uh, you arrive in Iraq, and it's. Did you get there in 2007 or end of 2006? Uh, early 2007. Okay, right. So now the surge is really just the, the surge brigades are starting to float in. I think the first one maybe is, you know, rolling in in February. Um, it's life on a conveyor belt, right? You get, did you, you know, you get to your unit and I don't know, you can fill us in, but I don't know how long you were there before you all deployed. But uh, as I remember it, of course, it was just, you were either, uh, your unit, when you got to it, was either already in Iraq, just back from Iraq or on the way to Iraq on some version of the training schedule, right? Some version of the patch chart, the process that everyone went through. And you arrive in South Baghdad what was your, I mean, what was your understanding at that point of where, you know, you sort of fit in? And if you could just take us a little bit on your, you know, at any level of detail you prefer, your education sort of like about uh, the extent to which this matched what you imagined, the extent to which it was difficult to process or the, the whole just kind of breezy version of, I get to Iraq and it was this, I thought it might be this. And this is what, you know, right. <laughs> the journey we all went on that can be ugly and beautiful and everything. Right. So we landed down, uh, we had stayed in Kuwait for a while, a few weeks and some people from our unit were trickling in onto the base ahead of time. And this was our turn to make it onto the base and the helicopters land. We jump out. It's dark. Um, it was February, so I recall there being like some moisture on the ground, like puddles, and uh, there's a lot of outgoing artillery fire. And 
you know, we were cherry. It's my first time in country. And as, as with a lot of guys in my platoon, so it just right away, it became very real. It became all right. This is actually like a combat zone. Like we could die at any moment. And it, we didn't know that it was outgoing fire. We were like, some of us would cover. And then the people who were there in advance would say, Oh no, that's outgoing. Don't worry about that. And is yeah, it just immediately became real. It, uh, it didn't take, I, I think, I think American culture, just because the media and movies has a romanticized version of war and what it is and what it stands for, but it's, it's brutal and it's messy. And I was, that started sinking into me just that first day. But then we'd go, we started our mission and I've always been one to ask like, why, why are we doing this? Why, like, what's the point here? And I would never get any answers. And at a certain point I started questioning the entire mission <laughs> overseas. Like I, like I said, you have time to think. And I just wasn't getting, I wasn't seeing any value that we were bringing. I wasn't, um, I didn't feel good about what we were doing. I didn't feel like some great liberator. I didn't feel like, yeah, we're giving these people democracy. They really want it. I'd talk to the vendors that would come on base and they're like, things were better before you guys got here. <laughs> and so that made me question our mission as well. And I, I honestly, I started seeing some of um, my leaders get disgruntled as well with the mission and, uh, I think, yeah, morale, morale just became very low. I started, I started thinking about, yeah, more of the moral implications. Like, all right, we're, we're a superpower. We say we're going to bring them democracy, but is that really what we're trying to do? And I didn't really have the resources at the time to spend a bunch of time on the internet researching stuff or read, read the right books i don't i don't think that type of literature had been crafted yet maybe in like uh periodicals and things those conversations may have been happening but none of the hard-hitting books I'd, i think those would have come out after the fact <clears throat> but it's just uh just questioning the mission that was enough to open my mind like bringing democracy to an oppressed people sounds very noble and what I went there and experienced did not feel noble to me. So that was enough for me to, um, I guess, begin looking around. It cracked open my mind. I was open to new ideas, new interpretations of what was happening there. And, you know, we joke about it being about oil and stuff like that, but we never, we never really knew. And probably the, the most clarity I got was that, and I bring this up in the book was this is well after the fact, but it really helped um, open my eyes uh, was this when General Wesley Clark came out and talked about how this mission to overthrow Iraq came right after 9-11. There was a memo going through the Pentagon. I'm sure you guys have heard this story. Uh, 
you've probably discussed it here on the show, but he was saying that shortly after 9-11, one or two weeks afterwards, he was in the Pentagon and someone told him, hey, we're going to invade Iraq. He's like, well, why, why are they somehow connected? And uh, the guy said, no. And this report also says we're going to invade all these other countries, countries which are like Libya and Syria. And I saw that video after many years of processing and trying to come to my own peace. And that just really helped me understand like, okay, I don't feel guilty anymore for questioning the mission overseas because it's pretty apparent that I was lied to. So I think it's okay for veterans to question their mission. It's not like you're, when you do that, you're not, uh, you're not being unpatriotic. You're, it just shows that you actually care. You know, I don't, I don't know if you guys went through a period of shame or guilt when you, you're, ideologies your thoughts began to shift did you guys does that resonate for either of you i mean absolutely i i I mean i'll jump in and back out but there is that feeling of i'm the only one that is questioning this or uh i'm one of the few and therefore what does that say about me and can i actually speak about this publicly and what is your family going to think that's so proud that you went over there absolutely and that that you know segment of my life was uh far too long and really didn't fully dissipate until probably a few years ago i don't know about what do you think Henry? um I knew we were we were part of a failed mission, my first tour. Second tour, I just wanted everybody to make it home in one piece. Um, also, I was that uh, that period, beginning of the surge, I was there as well. I forgot to mention that earlier. Um, I got there in May of 07 and left in July of 08. Um, but my area was calm, actually. I was out in Al-Ambar, attached to a battalion of Marines. And it was it was quiet. It was after the first tour, which was not quiet at all. Um, it was eerie. Um, but uh, at, at that point, you know, I I, I didn't. I was still buying, uh, t- towing the line that there was still a lot of good in what we were doing. That we had removed someone who was truly evil. Um, that it was it was better it was better for our presence you know that was the the i think the biggest umbrella idea that i got to and then after i got out i i didn't think about it for years i buried myself in other things and i didn't realize that that was a a component of my own ptsd um but then uh i think it was following uh osama bin laden's death I started to get a lot more interested in our national security, reading a lot more, watching a lot more TV. Uh, not sure how much truth there was in there, but it was certainly experience for the time. Um, and then the, the thing that woke me up the most was doing this, was the, the time that I, um, the time of the 2016 election, watching Bernie lose, knowing he got cheated and taking those examples of poor leadership and just uh, 
government propaganda pushed down your throat, I started to look at lies in other places, and that was how I found Danny. Um, was looking for voices talking about what we're talking about right now, because I was I was I was looking for comrades of a sort uh, to to understand what what I was going through, you know. It, uh, um, and then from there, it's you know it's, I've just it's just grown since we've done this. Um, the guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone whom you might think could be affected by it. A young person looking to join the military or possibly parents advocating for a kid joining the military. Conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name. Advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and inflicts on those same minorities across the globe. And anyone else you think might be affected by it. Please take a moment, share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer of the podcast, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. And do understand that if you can't afford to contribute to us, that doesn't bother us at all. This is a hard time for everybody, and we just want to make sure that what we share gets to as many people as possible. And now... Let's get back to the podcast. Well, not to stop you, but that right there is one of the reasons I really felt called to share my story um, was just to sh show and share that process with potentially other veterans or families of veterans who they see struggling and perhaps uh, setting a pathway for them to make it through with a little less um, pain and suffering than I, than the path that I forged for myself. But it really is, it is like an isolating experience because you are stepping outside of the worldview that you 
that you were surrounded by when you went into the military. So that's probably, it felt isolating from your family and your, your old friend group and, and even your military friend group. And all of that can be isolating, which can only exacerbate other mental, uh, spiritual, even physical issues. And I felt called to share my experience because I feel like I, I came out of that healthier than I was even before I joined the military. So through all that darkness, I, f I feel like I had discovered um, my light, you know, and I, f I felt like that would be something that, that could bring value to people's lives. So that, yeah. And it, yeah, it's, I, commend both of you for having the courage to speak out and being that light for other veterans like Henry just shared like is there's got to be other people like me or am I just a freak or am I just uh feeling this way because I hate myself or whatever you know uh there's a lot of uh information that's hidden or it's not made uh publicly available in mainstream media that can confirm a lot of uh, what we what we think, you know, it's, it's just not common information. So from an outside observer who doesn't, who doesn't study this stuff, you know, it might just seem like we're a bunch of disgruntled vets, but I feel like it took me on a pursuit of truth and understanding that once I felt like I had a certain grasp, it really like brought me a sense of peace. No, this, that's, you bring up a really, a bunch of important points. I mean, obviously I, I think we're flattered to think that we've even reached a place where, um, where folks would reach, where folks have really started, especially in the last year or two, reaching out to us. And, um, and it's, it's, I think it's uh, Henry. You can tell me. I think you probably feel something similar. It, it can be a, a vindicating is a bad word. Actually, I don't like that word, but it's more like a, a sense, like you said, that you're not alone, and that there's this community that's already out there. We just didn't know each other, and in this digital world, and a highly mobile tech world where we live all over, um, it's hard to find each each other, and you may not run into them in your individual small small unit but then you realize there are other folks out there of course what henry's describing and like you know uh, us finding each other is probably the most morbid meet cute in any romantic comedy and i just think <laughs> that needs to be noted but it's been but it has been uh, it, it's been one of the great love stories so but but i think it's it's interesting though because over the years it's it picked up steam and now it's really kind of started to take off here at the pod and then also just in our individual sort of uh, careers and it, it, there's something afoot as I've been you know writing about a lot recently of uh, especially since COVID and even more so since George Floyd and the troops in the streets uh, folks are finding each other this this anti-war dissenter or at least skeptical about the warfare state thing that's happening it's growing and so folks like you who you know, we're all doing it in our own way. We're all contributing in our own way. And, and I, and, and people will email me all the time and say like, Oh, I feel terrible that I'm not on the streets after I read your article about being in Tulsa or something. And I say, well, listen, like, you know, to go full Marxist, like, you know, to each according to his ability. Right. You know, 
and and everyone does it in a different way so like if you're an artist you do it this way if you're a poet if you're whatever and so clearly um you've contributed to the broader you know quote unquote movement in in your way and uh and henry i'll say this and i'll turn it back over to you but one kind of question taking us to the trail if that's okay is that you mentioned this idea of like a journey for truth and a quest for it sort of and um anybody who's known me in like the last year especially We'll tell you that like it, it hit me and it, it resonated because I'm always constantly referring to my sort of authenticity quest, you know, uh, in everything, right, in lifestyle and all that. But it really does all center back to the professional world, right, in the military and in the descent. And when I think about the trail and, that, you know, I, when I think about your, your, you know, your long hike and I think about your writing about it, those strike me as some version of what you described as you know a journey for truth or a journey for authenticity and i was wondering if you could sort of i know we're skipping some steps but maybe just jump to the why jump to the i i i i go from iraq to out processing the military or whatever the rest of the time is and you can fill in and then like i find myself walking you know in the woods like that to me is an interesting decision an interesting place to go after the military or you know at some point after the military well it all boils down to escapism so when i was overseas i one of the ways i said people could help me out or support me was to send me a book off of this national geographic list of top 100 adventure books that was my way of entertaining myself overseas and um also escapism like sometimes it became too hard to engage with the reality of what was actually happening so i'd maybe uh i would retreat or maybe even disassociate and just immerse myself in these stories which were often harrowing because these are hardcore adventure stories of like shackleton uh exploration of antarctica or climbing Everest for the first time. It's pretty extreme situations, but uh, I just immersed myself in those stories. And at some point I convinced myself I was gonna have one of these adventures and the Appalachian Trail seemed like beginner friendly enough that that's the one that I focused on. I had actually met someone during my time in the military who had through hiked the Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian Trail is a 2180 mile footpath that spans from Springer Martin, Georgia to Mount Katahdin in Maine. And he was telling me all this. This is actually the first time I had heard about it was when I was already an adult. And he's like, towards the end, I got rid of my tent and I was just sleeping under a tarp at night. And it really piqued my interest. I thought it sounded pretty badass. And I guess, yeah, just at a certain point in the the deployment, I just started fixating on the future because that's the one thing I could look forward to, I guess. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to hike the trail. I started telling my family I was having this thought that I was going to do this thing and educating them on it. And it's been any time I had any... You know, didn't have all tons of internet access over there, but I'd research some stuff about the trail and get a better understanding. And let's see, I had about a year after the deployment, I had a year in the military 
they tried to stop loss me, but I was able to get out of that because I did have some medical. Um, I was trying to get a paper trail on some medical stuff that was going on with me, and I was able to use that to get out of the stop loss orders, which was nice. And I ended up on the Appalachian Trail on July 2nd, 2009. I started in Maine, and it was really... At that point, I was out of the military. I was looking for a new identity and I was grappling with like this sense of, this overwhelming sense of confusion. Like I'd just been through this buzzsaw of every human emotion you can think of. Uh, my mind is somewhat shattered because my worldview is essentially collapsed and with it, so had my identity. So I end up on this trail, I'm with my brother he had just graduated college into the great recession economy and he's like well hiking the trail sounds better than this <laughs> so uh, we ended up hiking together and yeah I was, yeah I was a lost little puppy I was trying to put on a brave face but I was in need of mending and repair and um, just strengthening and, and conditioning and conditioning of like a moral and psychological and spiritual sense and that's how i found myself on, on the trail so henry i'll let you sort of jump in with some of your questions here all right <clears throat> so you mentioned uh, you made a quote or a quote excuse me a little quote from your book i'd like to read real quick yeah um I ignored the pain and treated my body with the same expectation of unfailing compliance as I'd been treated in the military. My knees and feet became nothing more than cogs assigned a task. So I extended them the same compassion given soldiers in combat as factory workers in dimly lit warehouses or corporate peons in faceless cubicles. I expected them to perform without complaint in response to unrealistic expectations. And now that my toes showed signs of wear, and like any manager under pressure to meet sales goals and budget limitations, I only got annoyed at the inconvenience of their pathetic balking. A detached avoidance seemed the best managerial decision. If my pinkies wanted to remain attached to the circulatory teat, they had better toe the line. I Pun intended. I, I love that pun there. That was <laughs> like, oh, I love it. Um, but it, there, there's a there's there's a real truth inherent there, you know, in in discussing you know the the parts of your body that end up becoming almost serialized appendages for the military. Um, you know, every first sergeant that I had had at least one messed up shoulder and one messed up knee, and they were you know. 20 to 24, 25 years in the service. And so it was very clear where I was headed if I stayed in, no matter if I was in peak condition or the condition I was actually in while I was uh, my last couple of years. Um, but, and, and, and the detached avoidance, you know, the, that, that concept of, okay, it hurts and I don't care. I still have to do this. Okay. I'm tired. It's, but it's, I have to do this, you know, and it's that constant pushing and you start to understand that there are people, 
you know, and, and, and the military, I think, indoctrinates you to think this way, that they become those serialized instruments. They become nothing but meat cogs in, in a machine, and they're, when their usefulness runs out, they have no use to anyone anymore. Um, but yeah, I thought, I thought that was, uh, that was brilliant. Well, one of the, one of the most important lessons I, I learned a lot of lessons on the trail, but this is one that will resonate with many veterans and we all struggle with it. Um, as far as I'm aware is this concept of self care. Uh, it was foreign to me but it was something that I really had to learn to focus on because I had been so trained, like you said, um, indoctrinated to focus entirely on the mission. Um, not really care so much about my body or my, even my mental or emotional health. It's like mission comes first. And there is still a lot of that in our society, just in like corporate culture and all of that. But I, I think that was, that's something that I, you know, if I meet a, a veteran who's struggling, that's one of the th- little points of wisdom I'll, I'll try to share with them early on because that's a blind spot for a lot of, a lot of vets. And that's why a lot of, that's why I think a lot of vets will turn to drugs and alcohol just to kind of numb, numb how hard their life is because they're, they're pushing and they haven't learned that. Uh, there's things they can do to s- step back and unwind and release whatever needs to come out. And that's, that was one of the values I found in, in art. And that's why I felt called to start the nonprofit uh, to support veterans in that journey, introduce them to things like yoga and meditation and uh, still, you know, people are still fighting that fight. Maybe tell us a little bit more about the nonprofit or, you know, for the listeners, um, how the genesis for that, the process and what, what, what your focus and thought is and uh, the value that you bring, I guess, with, with that and how it's different from some of the other things that are more typical in the veteran support community industrial complex. Yeah, <laughs> it's become an industry like any other. So I purchased a home uh, a few years ago, and it had this uh, dilapidated mother-in-law unit on it. And I, I think they're calling them accessory dwelling units now. And I had this vision because I, I attribute much of my healing and uh, just getting my mind right to the process of writing a book. It really allowed me to dig deep and explore unexplored parts of my psyche and just kind of really get to the root of the issues um, that had been plaguing my life for some time. And I thought, uh, you know, I'm, I still have that part in me that wants to be of service and, and serve others. And I really understand the veteran experience. So I thought that's somewhere where I could be, very helpful. And I know that writing was a great healing modality, especially when paired with these uh, 
other techniques like meditation or, or yoga that help uh, re release stored and pent up energies. And uh, I've worked with two veterans at this point, not officially, no, no Hemingways or anything yet. The I've worked with veterans. I've supported a homeless vet for a time and another veteran who I think was probably on a, like a manic type episode. I was able to house him for a while. Um, but honestly, I'm still building this space out. And those veterans, I'd, I was able to support them as they were helping me with that space. I guess that, that was like my excuse to, to bring in a couple uh, injured, injured vets. And it's getting close. I the goal is to have um, offer a six month stipend so vets don't have to worry about finances, and they'll essentially just get a paid every couple weeks or whatever, and they can just focus on their art for for that amount of time. And I I believe that if you can. Uh, get rid of like some of the survival stuff like money and where's the rent going to come from and all of that. It can really free up a lot of space for further inquiry. Um, and a lot of that artwork I, f I feel like can, can really be healing for people. And that's the whole process. I, I will certainly look for people that have like literary potential to stay here and uh but the purpose itself is to heal heal the veteran and this book and the promotion of the book uh 50 of all proceeds are going towards the the nonprofit mission i needed to raise some funds um for this effort and this is part of my way of doing that so again thanks for helping me get the word out No, absolutely. I mean, that's huge. And we have a guest and, and, and he or she is doing the kind of stuff that you are. Um, it, it's so valuable to publicize it. I mean, first of all, because of its inherent worth, but also because like you mentioned with this finding each other in the, in the anti-war community or in the skeptical community, it's amazing how many opportunities and relationships are forged because someone heard you say something on some random thing. Right. Uh, right. and, and so that's great. Um, and, uh, if you could, if you can, I don't know if you've, uh, already mentioned or if Henry did, but if you could like replug your, uh, the, you know, the, the name or the, the title and, uh, you know, any, any ability, the best ways to outreach or find you, I think that would be helpful for folks too. Yeah, so the book is Waking Up on the Appalachian Trail, A Story of War, Brotherhood, and the Pursuit of Truth. Uh, I go by N.B. Hankus. That's my pen name, I suppose. And I have a website, nbhankus.com. Uh, I'm sure you guys will get that in the show notes. And it can be found on Amazon.com. It can be found pretty much anywhere you find books. And if and, you and, if you could purchase yeah. it from my website, and I'll I'll sign it for you, before I mail it out. 
that's a good idea. I need to do something like that. Uh, and then for the and for the um, is your is your nonprofit sort of rolled up into that or have a separate um, aspect yeah, it, through at, the website? Yeah, it's going to be through the website at this point. If you want to find out more, I just, because I'm still building out this space. I'm right. I, like I'm not. It's in a, it's a weird position because space isn't ready. So I I don't feel comfortable going for grants and I don't want to use money allocated for veterans to like fix a space that I would eventually benefit from having fixed up. So I'm trying to do it on my own. So it's actually making it take a little longer than it would if I had outside help, but that's, that was my decision. Well, it's amazing how difficult life can be when you have principles. (laughs) It really, it throws a wrench in the whole thing. And I think we all need to work on being a little more venal because life would be easier, wouldn't it? Well, can we talk for a moment? I don't know if you guys have. No, time. no, no. I was, I, yeah, I wasn't okay. wrapping this up all necessarily. Right. I, I was really just looking for the not, like, you know, anything on the nonprofit or any, I know it's in progress, but yeah, I just wanted to kind of plug again, sort of yeah. that uh, since we mentioned it in that moment because you yeah. never know who's listening. Right. Yeah. They, they can contact me through my personal website or my handle on most things is at NB Hankus and they can reach out to me through Twitter, or Instagram, whatever. I'm, I'm open to all, all conversations. But speaking of principles, so one of the messages I was trying to get out with this book is something that uh, Ben Cohen of Ben and Jerry's, the conversation he had, something he brought up. And this is, honestly, I think it's, it's an idea that can appeal to both the, the left and their goals and the right and their values. Uh, it's, it's this concept of conscious capitalism. And this is something that I came up, I just, I, I kind of, uh, through the course of the book, I, I talk about stumbling upon this idea, you know, on, on the trail, my brother and I bumped into this sage-like character. It's kind of a hippie, super well-read, educated. And he starts turning me on to all these different ways of thinking about geopolitics, about economics and politics. And my mind starts reeling and I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring these two worlds together. Like this guy's world of, I'd say it's more on the left, left-leaning. And I'm trying to always resolve his conclusions and his data with the worldview that I grew up with, which is Christian values and conservative values. And I'm trying to like bridge this gap somehow in a way that uh, could be coherent. And I, I really felt that with the, this concept of conscious capitalism, you could achieve a lot of the goals that the, the left has using the value systems of the right you know like it seems like there's always been this battle but i uh i I think i heard chris hedges references this quote that it's something about the the difference between the left and right is it's just a minor minor narcissistic difference or something. I don't know. I, I, I botched that one, but I, th- I think that people on the left and right 
kind of want to achieve the same ends, but they there's no there's no like cohesive idea or vision or uh, or concept that both sides can wrap their heads around and support. So part of writing this book is I was trying to bridge these two worlds and the the best path forward that I could see, especially coming from like American values, where we're at now and where we might want to end up was this concept of conscious capitalism, which uh, Ben and Jerry's exemplifies. You know, we all you hear in the left a lot like, oh, corporations are just greedy. Uh, they don't care about the planet. They don't care about America, they don't, you know, uh, and all that can be true, but that doesn't, that's more of like a, a corporate culture, a corporate decision-making process, which a lot of people will just say, well, that's just always going to be capitalism and we need to get rid of capitalism because that will, it's an existential threat. And I've gone down that road before and I can't think of any solution um, that doesn't involve like people making things and selling them. <laughs> so it's not always that the corporations are bad. Some of them can be good. And like Ben and Jerry's, for instance, they did not have their core value system was not maximizing profit at the expense of everything. Their core value was, all right, we need to make a profit. We want to be able to support uh, our workers and continue our mission. Like you have to be wise with your finances to carry on, uh, but also to improve the life of like our workers by maybe doing an above average wage or even a profit sharing type situation. And then also, also making the environment better. And it's going to be the corporations that have the resources to do that sort of stuff, but they also need to make money. So that's where this consciousness that um, I see different thinkers and people in the public are beginning to nurture and come out and try to uh, impart on others is this, all right, there are companies that are doing good things that advance human rights, uh, human values, and improve the communities that they live in. And these are companies that we, we need to be aware of and support in their mission. And I think that the more that these companies evolve, um, the more that uh, it's like a virtuous loop. Like we'll see, okay, I'm supporting this company because uh, they have similar values to my own and I need to buy stuff anyways. So if I buy from this company, um, I am living in integrity according to my own principles and my own ethos. And when you do that, that actually is fulfilling a lot of the goals of the right. Like what's the right want? They, they want like a strong economy. They, I don't agree often with the ways they do that. Like they might get rid of environmental regulations because they want the economy to, the economy to be strong. I don't agree with that personally. I would say, well, why don't we just support companies that 
are going above and beyond so that they can continue to be like ethical and conscious as they're creating the things that we use to live on a day-to-day basis. And what, one of the things I want to use my voice for is to share that this isn't super abstract. I'm kind of uh, explaining it in an abstract way, but it's very grounded. And a good example of this is the, the B corporation movement. I had mentioned it before the show and I, I believe Ben and Jerry's and Patagonia helped fund this uh, initial B Corp uh, movement so that they could get a legal framework in place. But it's basically companies that say, hey, we don't want to be just be these profit maximizing uh, machines. We actually, like we're humans, we want to also bring our values into the workplace so they can go through this uh, a third party uh, rates them on their you know their environmental responsibility their business governance their uh, how they treat their employees compared to industry averages and if they get a certain score then they qualify to be a certified B corporation and uh, these B corporations, I think there's over 3000 now and it's a growing movement and it's, it makes it easy for consumers instead of having to do research about every single product you want to buy, which can make you go mad. You can say, well, I know these B Corp people, these are in alignment with my values. They advance my personal, um, like my, the aims I would like to see politically, but they're using the system that we have now. Uh, They're taking the parts that work and they're keeping those and then they're fixing the source code uh, a bit that it can function a little bit better for everyone, for the community, for the country, for, for the individual. So that was, that was one of the major concepts I wanted to get out. Um, using my voice with this book and these types of podcasts as well. Like I'm fairly hopeful because you can see studies of uh, different generations, like generational values, especially when it comes to purchasing things. And uh, there is a, there's a lar- a substantial increase in the percentage of millennials who will shop their values. Like it's, it's over, it's all over 50%. So I think this might be a type of consciousness that is emerging. And I think it's something that I'm going to use my, my voice and my time here on earth pointing toward as a good example of a way forward. That's not, um, it's more inclusive. Like, um, like even with some of this rhetoric of like, yeah, we're going to have a revolution and the left's going to take over power. And I'm like, well, I don't even, I don't fully understand what the left is trying to do or accomplish. I know like healthcare for everyone makes sense to me. Uh, but are, are you going to totally change the economy? Like some of that stuff is unknown to me. And I think that really makes people on the right fearful. So when I was trying to come up with my own personal philosophy and bridge these two worlds, that, that idea of conscious capitalism just 
made sense to me. And I think it's really something that could resonate with people on the left, obviously, that want to see these types of this type of progress in society and then also people on on the right. And I think that's I mean, that should be the goal of much political discourse. And also, like, because it uh, allows for your you to bring your values into your day to day purchasing decisions. Um, I think it's something, this is a message that could uh, appeal to um, religious institutions as well. It's something that could be taught. It's like a type of consciousness that could be taught um, through religious institutions. That's, that's super important. There's so maybe we could probably do an entire episode on that and we should actually probably consider it. Um, this idea of, conscious capitalism you know I, I i guess i'm a vague socialist um but at the same time having also come from a world where like that the s word is evil and understanding that the power of backlash and that if we are in fact in a third reconstruction right as a lot of um a lot of folks are saying uh, a lot of uh, scholars and such who work on race are referring to this as like the third reconstruction the second of course being the uh, classic civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s uh and the first being right after the civil war uh the the dark side of every American reconstruction or period of reform is that there's a massive backlash and retrenchment, uh, which usually is, is very harmful. And so I'm also conscious, uh, conscious of the need for synthesis or tactics that take into account that uh, one way or the other, like it or not, whatever one's ideology, uh, we have to somehow appeal or persuade which is super difficult, uh, folks for whom the idea of revolution, et cetera, sounds pretty far-fetched or scary. And right. so I really like that you bring that up. And, and the thing about Ben and Ben and Jerry's is that, I don't know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Henry, I mean, I think there's a reason that more folks in the lead-up to Ben coming on the show were, seemed like almost more folks were excited about him than generals and combat veterans and scholars, right? And people in government that we've had. And, and, and it's because his name is so, I think it's because his name is so associated with not Chunky Monkey, right, alone, although that is wonderful, uh, but more so the social consciousness of his business model and his, and his lifestyle, right? This is a man who lives his values. Um, and so I think that that's important, right? What what you're mentioning, and I think that his example is sort of a anecdotal but instructive proof. So um, I'm glad you brought that up. It's super important. And uh, Henry, did you have any uh, final question that you wanted to roll through before um, before I maybe ask one more of my own? Uh, no, go go ahead, Danny. So like to close, so to kind of close it out. Maybe it's a weird way to do it. Um, an important figure in your book is, you know, uh, I think Dylan, right. Uh, this, you know, yeah, I don't know, uh, not hippie, but sort of counterculture figure that really features prominently and got you thinking right about some of these other like lifestyles more than, and philosophies more than just individual ideas. Uh, cause it speaks to the synthesis you're talking about. It speaks to this idea of marrying 
the two worlds, right? The military conservative and Christian world with the, um, you know, ongoing reform movements and, uh, you know, leaning towards rebellion in some ways, which I don't think is a dirty word actually. Um, but a lot of folks do, and that's important. So if you could maybe just kind of close out with saying a little bit about a little bit more about how the extent to which he shook you or influenced you and where you are now, right? So, You've done your relatively conservative childhood. You've done the war. You've done your best to process the war, which is, of course, a lifelong struggle and not over. And you've done the journey and you've read the book and you're, you know, framing a nonprofit. Where are you now in terms of, uh, you know, personally to some extent, but but largely sort of intellectually and ethically, you know, like I know that's huge, but like that would be, I think, an interesting closeout. Uh, because people really do like the personal. They like to know the the figure. Well, I'll I'll start with Dylan. Dylan was like my first example of being around a person who was courageous enough to uh, trust in their own thoughts and trust in their own analyses of what they were seeing in front of their face, which sounds odd, but I feel like there's a lot of pressure to conform. Just that's part of being in the community in a society, but he was a total free thinker. He, he did, he'd never accepted the stories at face value. He, he read prolifically and I really valued his knowledge and insight. And when I first met him on the trail, he, you know, his hand rolling a cigarette, he was telling me about a time he canoed down the Mississippi river from the source to the Gulf, like, man, this guy's an adventure. And then I, he knew I was a, a combat veteran by then. He's like, yeah, this is just a rich man's war anyways. And that was like the first moment where I had that uh, sense, like, okay, maybe there's something to this, you know, this cognitive dissonance that I'm, I'm currently living with, maybe this guy has some information that can help me sort through that stuff. So a lot of the book is that, that process of him sharing his information with me and then me going through and dissecting that piece by piece, things that make sense to me, things that challenge me and things that motivate me to learn more. And that, that journey did not end at the trail. I continued on. I went to college. I got a a master's degree and all that time. I was just seeking, seeking, reading different types of books on politics, geopolitics. And eventually all those topics just seemed like they, um, they just begot more questions. So then I started, uh, researching things like little maybe a little further out but maybe a little more fundamental um things like consciousness and uh religions and spirituality just trying to really find like all right what's this whole life this whole life thing about and i i guess at a point i had uh through the practice of yoga i've always been a pretty um astute and intense student i I had a, like a, an experience. It was, uh, I think it'd be uh, considered maybe like a mystical experience, but that was what I needed. It was my road to Damascus moment where I 
felt like all those questions I had, all those longings and cognitive dissonances and just this desire to understand, like all that, all that weight and burden had just like fallen off of me. And I felt as if I had, um, had caught a glimpse of truth. And for me, that was enough to let go of these old chains and these old burdens and this anger and the shame and this guilt and all this stuff just let it go it's not that's all in the past it doesn't it doesn't pertain to me anymore and you know it really was like a moment of liberation for me and i'm just now feeling like i have that courage that i found so intriguing about dylan i just feel like now i finally have that courage to speak with my own voice and my own understanding like uh, Bob Dylan has a great line in his uh, song, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. He's like, I'll, I'll know my song well before I start singing. Like I felt like I was just in this metamorphosis stage for, for years, just really trying to understand the world and my own philosophy and what I thought about things. And yeah, now I'm at the point where I'm ready to sing. <laughs> so I appreciate you guys having me on and letting me speak um, with you and your audience. And uh, it's an opportunity I do not take for granted. Well, we don't take having you for granted. And uh, I'm just glad that we're connected. And we talked about how we all find each other. And the, the key now is, you know, staying linked and 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 sharing knowledge and sharing people that we run into and, and opportunities to make a difference because i think all three of us and and i know kagan for sure because he lives his truth are you know not so secret idealists behind the uh veneer of sophisticated uh you know cynicism that at least i and i think many of us sometimes feel or or put forward so um yeah, I'll, I'll let Henry have the last word, but I just want to say thank you for the everything you do. And everyone says that. And it makes my stomach hurt when people say it to me. So I figured I'd just pass that along and let you <laughs> feel a little ill for a moment. But, yeah, I, I really mean it. And, and it's it's been an absolute pleasure. And I know people are going to be interested in that we should do this again and take it in a whole other direction because it sounds like we can go in a million directions. So thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not be